All right, and welcome back to another episode of SASLife.fm. I'm joined here with Chris. Chris, you're back. You were on vacation for a little bit. Yeah, we're just getting back from Jackson Hole, which was a ton of fun. So I'm actually recording from home here. I hope the audio isn't too bad because although we're back, I'm not back for too long. I'm also packing up for what is definitely not a vacation to Indianapolis. Man, you are just seeing seeing the whole country. <laughs> Jet set Chris here from <laughs> Wyoming to Indy. <laughs> That's great. Well, tell me about Jackson Hole. How was it? What did you guys do? You know, it's my favorite place in the world, to be really? honest. I, I love Jackson. Yeah. My wife and I started going up there probably 12 years ago now. Total dirt bag staying in a, you know, really cheap condo right at the base of the resort. And since then, Jackson Hole has grown and there are no more cheap condos to stay in sure. and our family's obviously grown too. So it was really just a family ski trip at, at one of our favorite mountains. That's great. They hadn't had snow in something like 30 days. So that was a little bit of a bummer, but on the other side, the kids are getting into skiing now. And so it's like really, really fun to watch them grow and learn and get excited. So that, that kind of made up for it. That's great. And you guys are, you guys are close, close enough to actually drive. That probably makes it a lot easier just Pack everyone in the car, get all your stuff and all your gear and, and go. Other than the kids getting car sick, uh, oh, it is easier. Sure. <laughs> yeah, there's that. <laughs> I, I'm curious. I, I've, I've been skiing a handful of times in my life, but you know, I'm, I'm in Iowa, so we don't have the mountains. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's not, not a culture that I'm really familiar with. You mentioned that it hasn't snowed in 30 days. What does the resort do in that case? Do they make their own snow? Is, can you tell the difference? I mean, I'm fascinated by this mainly because of what's happening in the Olympics where they have the Winter Olympics in a place that doesn't snow <laughs> much. And I oh. just, it baffles me why they would do that. And I'm just, I, I mean, can you tell the difference as you're skiing on fake snow? Yeah. So as far as the Olympics go, that, that drives me crazy. I really think we've got to stop doing that. Come on. As far as Jackson and other ski resorts with no snow, yes, you can usually tell the difference if you're skiing on fake snow. It's just not quite as fun, but it's all right. In Jackson specifically, they have enough of a base. They did get a bunch of snow prior to this 30 days. So it really results in just more, think of it as like harder, more compact snow, as opposed to the nice fluffy powder that is a bit more fun and, and a bit more forgiving. Got it. Got it. So you feel it when you fall down. <laughs> I don't fall down. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that's my world. And as I said, we're, we're going to, turning it around here from Jackson to Indianapolis for the wet show that I talked about in the last podcast. So I'm starting to pack up and think about that. That's great. That's great. And how's that prep and planning going so far? Are you feeling confident about how that's that's going to be? Because you don't, do you have a booth at this one? Remind me, I forget. Or are you just depending? Yeah. 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 I, I'll send you maybe even for the show notes. We'll, we'll, I'll show you the booth. It's, it's neat. It should work well. You know, it's funny small aside when we started going to this show we had this really really horrible booth so i thought okay this year this was actually with the robot i said we're, we're gonna unveil the robot we're gonna really change this booth but of course it was booths are expensive and we were on a bit of a shoestring so we actually designed this whole booth with like wood framed stud walls and we used these like shiny white ikea panels it looked uh -huh. great Nice. But it was a full two days with four of us there setting it up. And now that there's not four of us to go, building stud walls is out of the question. <laughs> so we're, I'm going for quick and easy, but it'll still look good. Good. Well, I'm excited for that. That's that's going to be, like I said before, that's the booth stuff is is really fascinating. I love attending those kind of big conferences and you can get a sense for what's happening in the industry. and. To be on the other side as a vendor would be a really interesting take and just see how that goes for you. So I'm excited for you. So Indianapolis coming up. That's great. Yeah. What's going on with you? Yeah. So in my world, I'm pretty excited about a new integration that we just launched with ShipStation. And this is kind of a long time coming for some of our merchants, especially those that aren't using Shopify or another e-commerce platform. Like they're solely using text retailer to capture their orders. And what it allows them to do is basically as soon as we capture an order from a customer, we sync that information over to ShipStation. 
And ShipStation is like a fulfillment software. So it helps merchants manage their orders, print shipping labels, and just kind of keep track of what the current status of all their packages are and what these, what they need to box up and what they need to ship out to customers. And so we can take all the orders that we collect, sync it over there automatically. And then as soon as a label is printed in ShipStation, Text Retailer gets a hook back with all that information. We match up the orders on our end. And so I can update the status automatically within Text Retailer, mark the package as shipped, bring in all of the tracking information for the merchant to reference later. But really, what's really cool and what they really are liking, which feels a little bit like magic, is we can send a text message back to the customer that placed the order saying, hey, your package is on the way. It's being shipped by US Postal Service or UPS or FedEx, whatever. And here's your tracking number. And that all happens automatically. <laughs> like I started building, it was one of those integrations that came together really quickly, which is nice. I think I started building it on Thursday or Friday of last week. And I literally had the had it deployed in an email to, to, to my merchants that wanted to use it like Saturday afternoon. So it just kind of really busted on this and got it out the door. And the first merchant, they installed it that afternoon. They had an order like 20 minutes later. The order came in. I'm not sure exactly what they're using. I think they're using some sort of fulfillment service that actually boxes up all of their packaging packages for them. That fulfillment service is using ShipStation to kind of manage those orders. So the order got synced over to ShipStation. And then the customer got a text message saying, here's your tracking number, like 15 minutes after they placed the order. And so from a, from a customer perspective, it's like super magic where you get this offer. You say, yes, I want this. They say orders confirmed, and then 15 minutes later, you have your tracking information all on your phone. You didn't have to go to a website or anything. So that's pretty cool to see it in, in real life. And because I had a theory of how it worked, but actually see it deployed and being used by, by a merchant is, is pretty amazing. Is that a premium feature? Are you, do they have to be in a certain tier, or does everybody get ShipStation? As of right now, everyone gets it. So fulfillment is the number one or one of the big concerns that merchants have is it's it's fine especially for the bigger operations it's one thing to just generate this order orders everyone loves revenue but they need to fulfill these orders and so if we can't integrate well with their fulfillment solution then it's just not as valuable so i think this is just going to be one of those integrations that's just built in and just a part of it do you have to be a certain size as a merchant to really take advantage of ShipStation? is it really expensive is it hard to set up or or is it used across the board? I think a lot of merchants of different sizes because it's really just more of order management and shipping management. And I think some of the benefits, I I don't think it's very expensive. I just, I have a developer account, but I I think the way that ShipStation makes its money is on the actual label printing. So I don't know if there's even a monthly fee. And if there is, it's nominal, it's less than 50 bucks. So, so there's a lot of smaller merchants that are using ShipStation just to print labels because ShipStation will negotiate better rates than you can get as an as an individual merchant. So I think the merchants save money with their shipping by using ShipStation and they get the benefit of the of the, of the platform and management. And so it, it seems like it's a win-win-win across the board. No, it's funny. We used to use a brick and mortar version of of that back when we were moving more physical inventory. So yeah, we we would actually I don't remember the name of the service. So we'd ship through them. They would determine how the thing was going to be shipped. We just, you know, put in the weight and the size and, and we'd print a label out, but it was all, it was a pretty manual process. It wasn't very automated. And as a result, we would get the better rates. Right. From my experience, there's still a little bit of a manual process because once the order's there, you still have to like define what the box size is and which carrier you're going to use and things like that. But as far as like basically the order sitting there, they say, I want to print a label with UPS and here's the rate. And then they print it out and then it's it's just done. And so I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking at other integrations within this category. ShipStation is not the only platform that does this. There's others that take it one step further where they will actually do the fulfillment service itself. ShipBob is one that comes to mind. But the basic idea is that if we integrate with those platforms, the order goes in and then not only do they, but the company itself will package up and pick the items and box them up and ship them out for the merchants. And so a lot of these merchants, they're willing to pay more to just have their business automated, which makes total sense to me. Really interesting. Do they do uh, inventory management too at a certain point or no? I think they can. I haven't had a merchant that uses 
inventory management from from ShipStation yet, but in theory we could incorporate that into it if we need to. Most most merchants they're using well, well text retailers a standalone. They're using us as their source of truth for inventory, or they're using like a, a Shopify or a Big Commerce, some other e-commerce platform, and that's going to be the source of truth for for inventory. Or they're frankly using something else entirely, and what they do is. When they are sending out a offer, they're just going to say, I'm going to take 50 of those items and allocate them to this text campaign. And that's the quote unquote inventory. So they're still using text retailer to kind of manage that inventory, even though they might have a larger inventory system that shows the true, true amounts, but they're just using it for their text program. Got it. Well, customers must have been pretty excited about that. These guys, they were like, this is a game changer because uh, especially the merchant that was, that I, that I first told about, they were doing all of this manually. So they would export the orders as a CSV, upload it to ShipStation manually, which is fine if you're doing like batch campaigns, like big campaigns that you send out to everyone. But a lot of these merchants, they're starting to do automations. And so as soon as someone enrolls, they'll get an offer and they can buy as part of that, that sign up process. And so these orders don't, they can come in at any time, you know, when someone, someone orders. And so to have to continually check the system and export those orders and manual process is kind of a, a pain. And then they were doing, uh, they would print the label in ShipStation and they would manually copy that information and bring it back to text retailer to send the text message to the customer. So I think I saved them tons and tons of work hours just by this simple integration. You get that little dopamine hit when you send it out to them and they're just like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. And you're like, yeah, I feel good. So that was, that was a fun one to complete. And, and how again, did you let really, people know about it then? Did you send out a, an email or? That's something I got to get better at. Definitely. Okay. I, I handpicked a handful of merchants that I knew were using ShipStation, sent them a personal email, gave them instructions on how to do it. But I need to get better at informing not only current customers, but people that have been interested that are in the email list that are potential customers and just kind of get, I, I just, I need to get more systematic with that because I've definitely been focused very heavily on product development and building stuff and uh, kind of ignoring the marketing side of the business, which is not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, what? Yeah, Sorry, I, I have my excuse. Remember, marketing comes in Q2, but I have right. to tell you, we, we'll get to it in my update. We rolled out a new feature too, and I did the exact same thing. There was no big update. There was nothing. I just knew a couple people who I had spoken to about it who really wanted it. They got an email and it was on to what's next. Yep. And, and it's, it's easy to fall into that trap, especially when I can't recall what your customer count is, but I'm, I'm sub 20 right now. And so like, I know every single merchant and their entire setup that they're doing. And so I know which ones are going to use this specifically. And it's very easy to just ping them individually and move on to the next exciting thing to build. And that is, I think, okay for now, but definitely something that I need to get better at, especially as we start to scale up the, the number of merchants. And frankly, I'm, I'm probably missing out on a great opportunity to, I guarantee you there's merchants that I've talked to in the past, maybe even given a demo to where they're like, oh, this is great, but they need to have this fulfillment solution. And they don't know about it right now that we have this and that we've integrated it. So I need to get better at that. Yeah, we have a whole list of customers who use other products within the suite. So, I mean, of course they would like to know this information and it might be what changes their mind and, and gets them on board. I shouldn't say changes their mind, but has them hop on board. And yeah, we don't put it out there at all. It increases the value proposition. You know, the switching costs might be too high given what they know right now. But if you say, oh, we have feature A, B, and C now, oh, that makes more sense. It changes the calculus on their end and they, they might be more inclined to, to make that switch. So when does marketing start for you? So that's, that's a great segue, Chris. So, that's because I'm looking at the notes right here. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, got a couple of irons in the fire with, with marketing. The first that I'm really excited about is I am in the process of redesigning the marketing site and it's less of a facelift, although there's going to be a little bit of design improvements, but it's more of just structuring the website and bringing to light some of these new features, some of these major features that we just don't even talk about. Quick carts, for instance, is not even mentioned at all on the marketing site. And, and some of my merchants, that's literally their main selling concept. They love the quick cart concept so much 
They're using it in combination with click funnels, and then they send people to a quick card to check out. So text messaging is kind of a component that they're using, but they're really just using the quick carts is the main driver. So I think getting that out there and just saying, hey, we, we do more than just text messaging is great. The new concept that we have for uh, reminder text messages based upon order history so that you can kind of build out these what we call on-demand subscriptions for customers where let's say you order a product, it's a 30-day supply, you can get an automatic reminder on day 28, do you want to reorder? You reply yes, two days later it's on your doorstep and you've, you know, you're, you're doing that subscription without being locked in. And so it's it's kind of talking about that. It's it's talking about the new integrations that we have. So it's more of just a content refresh update and like a better reflection of what the, where the product stands. And so really excited about that. Are you working with that external firm you'd mentioned before? Okay. Yes, yes. So, so how much they, of the content falls on you then? And what's those workload split? Yeah, yeah. As part of that, they they actually had, we budgeted out a copywriter that is on their team. And so I'm working with their copywriter specifically and that we're, we're kind of taking the approach where we're doing, we did site architecture first, where we outlined here are the major features that kind of get a, you know, top nav or main navigation billing, you know, things like the, the reply to buy has its own section, has its own page. A quick cards is going to have its own section page, landing page concept. And so we kind of figured that out first, as far as here's the big things that we need to talk about. And then we worked on the content for the homepage first. And then we're kind of divvying up these other pages next and really doing a full content. And then we go to design. And that's been a pretty good process where the content is driving the design. And so we talk about the things we want to say, and then that drives the design and how we lay out the sites. So that sounds so obvious, but it's so easy to do it the other way. I've fallen into the trap many times of, okay, this is the way I want it to look and feel. And then where should I put this content? Yeah, and and I we made a conscious decision to do it that way for for that exact reason is it's easy to get lost in the branding. And I'll admit, you know, this is this is arguably the second refresh that we've done. So the first first version of the marketing site I did myself <laughs> solely including the logo and everything, and it was bad. And so <laughs> I engaged uh, Kevin Creative Mellon to kind of come up with a branding identity. And so as part of that he did the logo and some kind of a color palette for the website. And I took that and just slapped it in there and kind of did a fresh coat of paint on the marketing site, but not really focused on content. So that's what I did. The first version is just, let's make this look a little bit nicer, but it's still the core content. And now we're really breaking things down, devoting a lot of energy to what do we want to say? Who are we saying it to? Why are we saying it? What's the most important things to say? And, and then the design comes later. Makes sense. And it's going well. Do you have a date yet for launch? No. And that's, that's on me again. It's just been kind of like, I've been so focused on products. It's like, whenever you guys get it done, you get it done. And so I need to probably have a sit down talk of like, we need to get this out by, be nice to have it out by baby. That'd be nice. (laughs) So (laughs) before May would be lovely, but I I think we can, you know, we're February. I, I would imagine we're, we're, you know, three to four weeks out probably at this point. There's a lot of progress. I've happening. got a couple of those projects too that I don't have a strict deadline on. One that comes to mind is an integration we're working on. And I've got a subject matter expert who's really kind of taking that on. And I always feel bad because it's just, it's not top of my mind. And so I usually take a day or so to get back to him. And I'm not responding to him as quickly or moving things along as quickly as I could. But on the other hand, that's just the way it is. That's where it falls in the priority list. And that's what the business needs right now. Yeah, I take I take confidence in that. I know they're not ignoring the project, but it's not like I'm pushing it ahead, you know. So I might not be accelerating it as much as I could because I frankly don't have the bandwidth. <laughs> so yeah, but you don't feel like you're a blocker. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's a nice cadence right now. As with every project that you're running, it's always nice to get it done yesterday. You know, you always would love to have the results out there. And so I could definitely, I could, I could probably push a little bit harder, but then I, I think that's exactly what would happen is if I push harder, they'd be like, okay, you have to prove this, this, and this, and we need to have this content. And I'd be the roadblock or I'd be the blocker. And I don't want to do that. So pretty happy with the progress right now. It looks good. And I also, I'm also a firm believer in letting experts do what they do best. And if it takes time for quality design and to really for them to understand the product and how it all fits together, I'd rather have them take that time and kind of 
really have a full understanding of what's going on there as opposed to like you have to meet this deadline in order to get it done because I'd rather have it done right than done now. Yeah, especially with something this critical. Yeah, there is going to be a time, especially when I'm looking at some upcoming blocks that I'm looking at to where I'm going to be moving more into the marketing and starting a, I have plans to do a cold email outreach program of some kind or experiment at least. And I need a good marketing site. If those emails are going to be good, I need someplace to send them to. That's right. And whether it's a standalone landing page or whether it's the full website, that's definitely a blocker for that project. And so there's going to get to a point where I think once I'm done with this next integration push, which I believe is going to be big commerce, which is a pretty big integration. Once I'm done with that, I feel, and I've said it before, I feel like version one's done, but I feel like that. Yeah, wait, us, wait a minute. I thought version yeah. <laughs> one was already done. It is, but it doesn't have the integrations that I want. But I think, I think really at that point, I will need to tell myself there needs to be a very good reason to do another integration beyond what I have, because I have a really core mix, I think at that point. And the thing that I like about something like a big commerce integration is it is marketing in itself. It's a feature, but it's a marketing play in that it gets me into this other ecosystem, which frankly doesn't have a lot of SMS players in there. And so it's a somewhat smaller market, especially when you compare it to something like Shopify. It's it's tiny, the number of mar- merchants that, I use, that use it. But the merchants that are using something like Big Commerce, you can make an argument that they're bigger. They have bigger revenue numbers because there's a specific reason they went to big commerce and they've probably are more mature in their e-commerce journey. They're not just starting out. You're not a mom and pop picking big commerce. There's a reason that you're on that platform. So I think the potential for bigger clients is, is high. Very cool. I think that that's kind of the rhythm you want to get to though, or at least what I think about is sort of when I'm developing a product, right? We'll, we'll, Get a feature set that appeals to a core audience. Core audience will start using it. We'll start putting some marketing behind it. And then we'll attract a slightly broader audience with slightly different needs. And then it's kind of picking and choosing which avenue to go down and where to expand the product. And then the marketing happens again. And that's the the cycle we all hope for. Yes. And I think getting into the big commerce well, first of all, they're a lot less restrictive around their checkout. So I can actually bring a full the true text retailer experience to big commerce and still be in their app store and have a deep integration with them. So I think there's a lot of things that appeal to me with that in that I don't have to compromise the vision of what text retailer is, which I have to do with another platform <laughs> a little bit. And there's a lot of hurdles to get into their app store. And so this seems like an easier path. It's not as big of a sandbox, but it's a different kind of sandbox. And it feels like it's it's one that I at least owe it to myself to experiment with and have a presence there and see where it goes. And it could be a really good decision or it could be a complete waste of time. We'll see. Awesome. Well, I've been touching on a few marketing things myself, despite declaring that I would not until Q2. But (laughs) some of that's driven by the wet show and some of that's driven actually by some confusion that's come up among our users. So our product that we really focus on in this podcast, the SaaS product is Pipe Tech Project. One of the things that Pipe Tech Project allows you to do is to create projects that can then be consumed within the desktop software and, and in other places. Uh, there's been some confusion about the application Pipe Tech Project and the specific entity within the software projects. Ah, yes. Which kind of surprised me. I guess maybe it. it shouldn't, but I think it's just one of those things, you know, you're living in this world. Why wouldn't a product that creates projects be called project? That seems logical, but people have started to get confused. It's also started to kind of limit the way they view the product, it seems. So, you know, they're thinking of it as something to create projects when really it does a lot more than that on the archival side, on the analysis side, and on how ultimately they can make use of the data. So, Pipe Tech Project is now becoming Pipe Tech Hub. Okay. All right. It's it's interesting to me interesting to me how much a name can impact the impression that is given to a customer or a potential customer or even a current customer, an actual user. Like they're in there using the system and they're like, well, it doesn't do this because it's called projects. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's just a name. And you think it's just a name, and it's crazy the psychology that that goes into it. 
You know, and I, I actually took that to heart too in renaming it Pipe Tech Hub because to be honest, I, I much prefer Pipe Tech Project. It, I, I like that. I, I like that name. Came, went through a couple different ideas, Pipe Tech IQ being one of them, thinking it's kind of the brain center, which I also like better than Pipe Tech Hub, but ultimately came down to the reason we're changing the name is because there's confusion. So let's be pretty explicit about where this sits in the ecosystem and what it can do. And in thinking that through and going through that exercise and running it by other people, that's where we kept coming back to Pipe Tech Hub because it really is the hub of everything you're doing inspection-wise. And, and when you say other people, was it clients and customers that you talked to or was it more of your internal team? And- no, more an in internal team, other stakeholders in the industry. I guess there was you know, one client who we're really close to, but no, I, did, I didn't put it out there to end users necessarily. Yeah, I think that's such a challenge that you have in front of you where it's not just a single product that you're working on. And we all know, how hard, I mean, I just talked about how hard it is to keep the marketing up to date on a single product, let alone a suite of products. Now, obviously you're not doing as much development on those others, but they're still there. And to have those be continually updating themselves and have a cohesive understanding of how they relate to each other and conveying that, that's a tough one. It is hard. I mean, as part of that and part of changing the name of Pipe Tech Hub, there are two Pipe Tech Hub. We're doing some new identity work. So a new logo for Pipe Tech Hub, and that carries over to at least the other core products. And so, yeah, I've been in my not marketing time working with a design firm called Design Joy. Have you heard of these oh, guys? No, I haven't, but I like the name. They're interesting. This, I say it's a firm and it is a firm, but it is one guy running a million dollar plus at this point, probably plus plus because he just came out on Twitter too. Million dollar ARR design business. His model is unlimited design, 2,500 bucks a month. Here's what we can do. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's an interesting model. It that is, is really interesting. Fascinating. I don't know how it's going to work for him. He is a one-man show. I mean, the bottlenecks are going to be crazy, I would think. But then again, if you've got a million bucks coming in ARR, your one-man show, who cares? He'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he, but he's, uh, his name is Brett. He's been really good to work with. He's really systematized the product. So you immediately sign up with a subscription. You get an invitation to an empty Trello that's structured and you can have a backlog of projects. So you design, you know, whether it's a loom video or I just wrote out a design brief, you have a backlog of design projects. You can move one into active. And then once that one moves into approved, you can move another one into active. And so far I've been getting one to two day response times as we're churning through. Yeah. Okay. So, so it sounds like there is some sort of throttling mechanism that he has. It's not like you can open up 10 projects at once. There is a little bit of a, you have to do one at a time type of thing. I'm curious with the, with the signup process, were there any indications that there's kind of roadblocks there or can anyone sign up and start dumping in projects in his, in his queue at this point? It's anybody who's ready well, to have a $2,500 <laughs> $2, hit on yeah. their credit card. Is it any contracts with this or is it just month to month? As, no, as you I mean, th- so I don't know him personally. I'd actually love to meet him and, and chat with him because I'm so fascinated by this. But as far as I can tell, he literally took the most annoying parts of design and, and engaging with an agency and tried to get rid of them. So it is just really low friction Sign up when you want. We can do almost anything. Here are the things like motion graphics is an example that we don't do. You can put them in one at a time. We'll get back to you in a timely manner, although we do not promise any kind of turnaround times, no refunds, you know, but you can cancel at any time too. And we'll work on anything you tell us to. So just feed it in and it'll come out the other end. That's, I mean, that's just so fascinating from a, just a, business model perspective. I mean, his unique thing that he's bringing to the marketplace is purely pricing <laughs> in the sense that, and I'm sure he's doing good work. And, and like you said, they're, they're, they're trying to make it streamlined, but for the most part, the hook is we're just going to take your normal pricing and we're going to flip it on its head and do something unique that it makes you pause and think about it and, and look at them and just give them a chance. Right. 
and it's interesting because it's a little bit self-selecting too, right? Because 2,500 bucks is not nothing. You know, uh, people that are at a different point in their journey might say, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. I'll go on Fiverr. Fine. You know, Fiverr's there for you or 99 designs or one of those. But at least the way I looked at it is, okay, 2,500 bucks is not crazy to just test this out. Some of his work is up there. I think I'm going to get something useful. I've got a whole month to get $2,500 worth of value. I can do that. That's on me. Let's try it. I I was just going to say you have enough stuff that needs to get done that you could easily see filling up $2,500 using a different firm some other way. So there's a little bit of an opportunity for you to come out ahead if you get more design out of that month than what it costs you because you have so much to do. So I, yeah, like you said, it's it, it's probably going to cost you 2500 anyway, no matter where you go. So give it a shot and see if the process works. You know, the other funny thing is I'm thinking ahead and it's like, okay, well, I've got enough in the queue. This is going well enough. I'm probably going to do this for a couple months at least, you know? So I'm sure he depends on that too. Frankly, we, we took some of the logos and then we took them in-house with our UX designer to tweak them a little bit more because that's more of a one-on-one process. This is more of an async process, right? In-house, we could do it more one-on-one and I'll get into this in a minute. But so he's been sitting idle now for a little bit. So I'm sure he depends on that too and the different gaps that come in as part of the process. Yeah. I mean, if everyone maxes that out, you know, and yeah, it's uh, totally 100% efficient with their projects. You know, th- there's only so much capacity that he has, especially as just being a one man person or one man show. So he's definitely relying on the client t- taking their, their time in certain aspects. And any of us that have done client work, we always know that the bottleneck is almost always the client and never yourself. So it's a, it's a good theory for him to yeah. test out. It's pretty cool. So I'll keep you posted on that, but we are doing the new logos. We will have those done by the show here, by the wet show. So we'll have some materials with the new logos on them. Was the show a little bit of a driver for for kind of getting these new, I think you talked about this last time a little bit, where it was a little bit of like, if we have these, we'd love to reveal the new look and feel and the new names, but not not necessarily, if, if it doesn't hit, it doesn't hit. But it seems like that kind of was a catalyst a little bit for this too. It was. It was. Yeah. Which felt a little bit rushed. But as you said, I mean, I I definitely said it at the outset that if I don't like the direction this is going, we're not going to rush it. I'm not going to force these. But I do think we're going to be ready and we're going to have something that's at least really close to the final version. We might iterate a little bit, but logos are so hard to, I mean, my, my benchmark is if I don't, if I don't hate it, I'm cool with it because they have to be used in so many different ways. They, They need to be so versatile they need to be simple, but they need to convey a message. I mean, logos are hard, at least so, to me. To me, they're right up there with with finding a name. Yeah, <laughs> it's just and how it's we're doing just, both. <laughs> it's it's something that you just have so many bad ideas that you throw against the wall in your head, and finally one kind of like is halfway acceptable, and then you check the domain name, and it's like, oh, not not available. Okay, back to the drawing board. <laughs> It's just names and logos are a necessary evil, but man, but, but when it works out and you get excited about it, then it's exciting and it's great. And so it's, it's just a lot of pain to get to that point. Yeah. It's been a process, but it's, it's fun. So we are settled on pipe tech hub. I think we'll have the new logos. And I mentioned before, we've got a UX designer now who I'm working with. So a couple of new hires actually, and, and keep in mind, these are not full-time hires now. These these are part-time hires, contractors. But you new UX designer was one and a developer to, if we had some turnover earlier, so he replaced the other developer that didn't work out, come on board. So that, that's been fun. But the UX, the developer's great. I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to get into his role right now, but uh, but he's, he's working out well so far. But the UX designer has been a game changer. Oh, that's great to hear. And and I'm curious because I know early on when you started your hiring, you you kind of, I don't want to say struggled, but you, you were surprised by the amount of onboarding that had to happen. Do you feel like these latest hires, that that process has been a little bit easier for you? Yes. Great. Uh, <laughs> and, and for two reasons. One is that we've done a better job of building up kind of a catalog of onboarding materials. So, you know, whether it is Loom videos, uh, in fact, we have Looms for code tours. So Ryan's literally talked about the architecture of the project, gone through code tour that they can watch on their own. And we have, I've done videos about the industry. And so 
there's a little bit of homework people do when they jump on board with us, but I, all of a sudden we're speaking the same language pretty quickly. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's such a different feeling than, you know, here's your laptop that doesn't connect and we'll get you an email in three <laughs> days and, and all that stuff to be able to just dive in and be like, you know what, we don't necessarily have a project for you right away, but here's all this homework to bring you up to speed. So like you said, you can, you, you feel like you understand the culture and you understand what the purpose of the product is very quickly. So that's great. Yeah. And I have my checklist too of like, okay, you're going to get invitations to Slack, to Linear, you know, et cetera. So, so that's all ready to go. But then the other thing that's been really helpful is I'm not necessarily the bottleneck. You know, this developer is working on a team now. So in this case, somebody else on the team really took the new developer under their wing and the questions go from him to the existing team member. Yeah, that's when the magic of the team starts to happen when stuff gets done without having to go through you all the time. And that's where the dividends really start paying off. Yeah, it, it's been cool. The UX designer was not somebody I actually, I, I, you know, I knew UX designers existed. I always thought it was kind of more of a big company thing, right? Like, because it's not a graphic designer. I mean, this is a, this is somebody who specializes in user interfaces, I actually had the title in a former life of lead UX developer. So, oh, really? Uh, yes, not a designer side, but on the on the development side. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is on this is on the design side. He he does not do any development. I brought him on because we had a really sticky but really critical screen that we were working through, really complicated, and that's the inspection editor screen. I mean, this is where you go when you're viewing in a single inspection. You want to edit it, but you also want to quickly see all the data that this video-based inspection is giving you. Yeah. It seems like it's a pretty critical piece of the the software. Super critical. Lots of moving pieces. And I brought him on for that. And holy cow, it was fun. I mean, he and I... So it's really changed now how we work because we're continuing to work this way. So he and I work in... My Figma chops are are nowhere near his, of course, but I'm I'm learning it more and more. And I've used it in the past, but I'm really digging into it more and enjoying it. But with him, you know, we'll riff on ideas and get to something that is just so much better than individually or me working with a developer would be. You know, he'll take my concepts and, and just improve them greatly. So it's been, and, and that's something I actually think I'm pretty good at, but yeah, I can kind of, I can convey what I want to have happen or what we're, you know, what the intent is and he can just polish it. And then the other thing that's been happening is he will polish it to the point where it's really, really self-documenting and implementable by the dev team. So we started him. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think I started him for that one screen and then moved him into the PipeTech Sync app that I talked about before, that little utility. It could have been the other way around, but we've worked on both those things. And now it's just become kind of my process. Like that is how anything new and complicated is conceived and executed. It makes such a huge difference from a developer perspective, if especially if they're a little bit more of a junior developer, to be handed not only just mock-ups of like, here's the concept, but explanation of here's the journey, here's what the customer intent is, here's what we're trying to convey, but here's what it's going to look like. And here's, it's all polished out. Not only does the developer have a, a source for what it's supposed to look like, but it can give them more understanding of what they need to build underneath the software, you know, through the actual, on the development layer and through the coding and what needs, what, what, what truly that page is about, as opposed to just these random bullet points of it needs to do X, Y, and Z. It just gives a much more fuller vision to convey to that, the developer. And I think they can be a better coder on top of that. I, I think so too, because as part of the process, we explore all the different edge cases, all the different states, whereas I would say our previous process was depending on the complexity, I would deliver a either low or slightly higher fidelity wireframe with maybe a couple different core states. And then we'd figure out the fringe cases or the other states as we went. And of course, those are always the trickiest things, right? They are, and they can have such implications for the data schema. I mean, uh, the architecture and all that stuff, it's those edge cases that can totally change how you're approaching that concept from a from a, from the from the back end perspective. Yes, uh, 
a hundred percent. And we, so we're, we're starting to be able to work through all of those. It also, it frees up the developers too. So we're starting to get into better cycles. Like, you know, we use linear for our issue tracking, but it's a little bit more than that. So we try to work in projects and cycles, cycles being time bound, projects being deliverable bound essentially. And so we're trying to work, you know, he and I, his name is Davar. Davar and I are trying to work kind of one cycle ahead in planning this workout that needs to be done and really digging into it. So that then by the time the cycle comes up, okay, we can jump right into these particular issues and we have this awesome design brief to always refer back to. So it's been fun. And I, I thought it would slow us down. I really thought that, that was something for bigger companies, like I said, that were a little slower. And as it turns out, it's actually speeding us up. That's great. That's great to hear. And it just, just the exercise that you're describing of going back and forth and really thinking out the entire flow, you are actually doing a lot of the, the hard work, quote unquote, of the, the development side, because you're thinking through all those edge cases and how do we handle this? And it might be more from a design perspective, but that spills over into the coding aspect too. So that's, that's great to hear that that, that new process is working out. And I hope to get there someday because it, like you said, it's just, Taking your original vision and bouncing it off someone that their bread and butter is is UX and design and just coming back with something that's like way more polished or and it could be as simple as just reordering the features or the elements that are on the page in a different way that just is much more intuitive. And so that's that's cool. I'm glad you found them. And it's just it's always so fun working with people who are better than you. I mean, where you're like, absolutely. I Love this. I never would have thought about it. You know, my yeah. my implementation would have been a B. This is an A. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. So, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So we applied that to a couple of new features as well. So the latest being some PDF report updates, which I feel badly, but the new developer has really been grinding through. Try to find. So I guess another part of the process as we're talking about new hires is trying to find an atomic project that work that touches the right number of points in the application so it's not overwhelming but it does provide exposure oh and there's some value there it's not just this like thing out in the middle of nowhere that no one's ever going to use and it's just a throwaway project yeah exactly there's got to be there's got to be value there's got to be learning you know so okay we're working with uh, these core objects you know or whatever it is this api and it's got to be atomic enough though that it's achievable because you know if you just throw somebody into something that's going to uh, touch 30 different endpoints it's not going to work it's going to be overwhelming right so for him unfortunately it was his pdf report which i, I say unfortunately because working with pdfs on the web is so tedious i mean it's kind of a pixel by pixel type thing almost not quite but kind of so he's been working on that but it is going well and that's an important part of our product because people still like to print things in our world. Got to Got to generate that PDF and print it out and put it in the inter-office mail. <laughs> Quick aside, I know we're, we're starting to hit time here, but I have to say I was asked the other day for a PDF report that would have been over 30,000 pages. I can't remember if I mentioned this on a previous podcast. No. Wow. But yeah. What do you do with that? You're I mean, a I, giant engineering firm who <laughs> is proving their value to charge giant fees to big cities. <laughs> how, I mean, I, I, obviously there's a search feature within a PDF and things like that, but I can't imagine that working well. Like you it, it, actually w- it actually wouldn't work at all. It would, yeah, um, I was going to say We didn't that, do it. It's just too big. It would crash. Yeah, yeah. But that was the that was the request. You'll, you'll, you'll get your results in three days, type of thing. <laughs> yeah, it was like it, yeah, it was a, something across like. A few thousand inspections, each of which wow. then would be like a ten-page report, and they said we could do them individually, you know, which is kind of more the norm. So no, we need this all collated into one report with a table of contents. You realize it's going to be like thirty thousand pages. It won't work. I mean, that's, anyway, that's what that's what the <laughs> software is for, right? You can access all of these things <laughs> in real time. It's not in the document. Anyway, yeah, wow. It, it, that's, just, okay. it just hurt on multiple levels. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the cool new feature that, we're, that we are about to launch and have been working through using this process is a feature called Views and End Collection, which is really neat because a lot of what customers need to do is slice and dice this data as opposed to just select all print. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... 
views give them the ability to essentially save different filters, sorting, different things that they've kind of, as they've whittled down the data into a manageable set that they can work on, they can actually save that view and it's dynamic. So if a new inspection oh, meets those criteria, cool. it will show up in that view. It's kind of like custom custom reports that they can kind of build for yeah. themselves in a way. Yeah, that's cool. Well, they can build them for themselves or they can share them through the organization so they can be public or private, which is cool. You know, so you, and, and I can't wait to see how this is used because it can be anything from, hey, show me all the inspections that have been done in the last year that contain roots. And I'm going to call that my, you know, my jetting project. And so you could have this ongoing project and that are not finished, you know, so you could have this ongoing project that's constantly updating and shows you what you need to do for cleaning roots out of a pipe. So that's a fun one. And then the other sort of simpler flip side to that is what we're calling collections, which is really similar to a view, but it's totally ad hoc. I mean, it's just saying, hey, these 10 inspections that may or may not have anything to do with one another or assets for that, put them together in a collection. It's kind of like a tag, right? That I want to revisit. So those have been fun to work on. I love features like that just because you think you might know, you see, you know that there's value there as you're building it. There's a reason you built those features and you, you know, there's a need and you think you kind of know maybe how those customers might use it, but you really don't. And so I love those types of features because those, I think, give you the best potential for going back to marketing, those wow moments of being able to say like this firm or this city did X, Y, and Z with these reports. And it's something you never would have thought that they would be used for. And it unlocks huge value because nothing else does that. And you're basically just putting out that tool and waiting to see how people leverage that tool for their own needs. And that's, that's pretty exciting. Exactly. We're going to have a couple starter reviews just to show how they work. And then I can't wait to see what other people do because then we'll start implementing those as well as starter reviews. Well, and even larger, you mentioned being able to share it within the org, depending on if you take it even one step further, like either you grab templates or concepts from customer A and either give them the ability to share with another customer or you just kind of build that into the platform. And so there's a way to kind of expand that templated system out as you see new customers use it and it can be a big driver. Oh, that's cool. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, it'll be neat to see where this goes. So th those should be launched by the, by the show as well. And we'll be able to demo them at the show. And I think it'll provide a lot of value. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, we are hitting close to time. So what are, what's the stuff you're into this week? You know what I've been getting into uh, with this travel? I've had a little more time to read, a little time on planes with podcasts. So I have been getting into the Khan Empire and, and Genghis Khan. Okay. All right. Very violent, man. But really, <laughs> really interesting just to learn how people lived back then. So I, I've yeah. been doing that two ways. One is the Hardcore History Podcast. Are you familiar with that one at all? Honestly, all the podcasts that I listen to are kind of like ours. I'm so in, I, I need to devote more time to fun, engaging stuff like what you're talking about, because I no, I haven't heard about it, but I, I want to add it to my list. Well, so well awesome. I would look at, yeah, it's Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. Wrath of the Cons is you know, what, what he talks about there. And it's, it's so well-produced and so good. And then the other way of been getting into that world is through this historical fiction series. So there's three books, and I'm sadly on the third. It's by, I'm going to get this name totally wrong, but Khan Igulin, something like that. And it's his Conqueror series. But if you look up Genghis Khan and Igulin, A-I-G-G-U-L-D-E-N, Conqueror series is really good. Again, fair warning, it, it's really violent sometimes disturbingly so but but <laughs> really really interesting just to imagine yeah. living in that place and time and and you said that was a historical fiction back in high school and college i used to love the michael crichton books because they were they were fiction but they were really based upon actual science at the time and and real world things do you get the sense that this is really has a really good historical context with it it's got a historical context for everything we know. There's there's actually a lot of just missing pieces because it was so long ago. But those pillars are absolutely there and are are definitely driving the book. I mean, you can almost imagine he's got, you know, this big outline of the known history, but he's filling in the details all the way down to narratives and and there's historical notes at the end as well so you can kind of compare. 
All right. So when's it, when's it uh, hit HBO then? <laughs> it <sounds> like... <laughs> yeah, good point. It probably will. What yeah, about you? Nice. What are you into? So I am into a website called brain.fm. And I, I don't know if you've heard about this, but basically I was in the search for background music. So when I go in, you know, when I'm doing these feature developments, I can't really listen to music with lyrics and like stuff like that. Sometimes I can do that, but if I really want deep focus, I really just want kind of background, whether it's classical or kind of atmospheric type music. And frankly, I was hitting the end of my playlists and kind of recycling the same stuff over and over. And I don't know how I came across it. Maybe it was some mention on Twitter or something like that, but someone mentioned this Brain FM. And really what it is, is a collection of music. They have three categories, one being focus, and that's the only one that I've really used, meditation and sleep. And they take these different categories. So at least with the focus one, they take this music and it's all kind of background music, stuff that you can easily zone out, but they apply some sort of process to it. And the best way that I can describe it is it's kind of this pulsating sound kind of that's interlaced through the music and they have white papers and there's some science stuff behind it. But the idea is you listen to the music for about five, 10 minutes, and it's supposed to get you into that flow state really, really fast. And I've noticed that if I have a project, and especially if I combine it with my, my flow state coffee <laughs> that I've talked about before, I literally start working and programming and two hours flies by and I have a ton done. And so I, I don't, again, I don't know if it's placebo. I don't know if it's just, if it's doing anything beyond normal background music, but it gets me into the right headspace and it's been pretty, pretty good. And I bought it, you know, so it has a monthly subscription and I went through the trial. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to keep doing this. So I've, I've been a big fan of brain FM. Cool. I will check it out. I've got a bunch to get done here yet today. So with that, Thank you very much for listening to another episode of our show. And I will catch you not next week, but the following, Sam, because I'm going to be traveling. Enjoy your travels. Take it easy and we'll, we'll talk to you soon. All right. See ya.